today's podcast, I am talking about the three D's in relationship endings. I have experienced what I term three D's in relationship endings. One, divorce. Two, death of my partner. Three, discard, as in the abrupt termination of the relationship by the other person. So today I want to talk about these three D's, relationship endings. Divorce. I had been married since 1981. We met in 1979 and I was 18 years old, living with my father, who was mentally unstable and suffering from alcohol addiction. He had brought a woman into the home and this woman was also an alcoholic. I had become the housekeeper after my parents divorced, but not only the housekeeper. I cooked the meals, cleaned the house and did the laundry. I was the eldest of three and there were two other brothers. When I met a man who was five years older than me and he showed me attention, I think I was charmed by the relationship. But even so, there were red flags right at the beginning. I can only look back now and see those red flags. At 18, I was too young and had very little experience with relationships. My own parents were not a good example. We had two daughters together, two years apart. After my second daughter, and by the time I was 27 years of age, I had a complete nervous breakdown. Now I have written a chapter about my experience of what happened to me at that point in my life. I wrote that chapter in a collaborative book using my real name and not a pen name. And the book was published in December 2021. By the time our daughters were teenagers, I decided to study for a degree. I had started with Open University to study social science, economics and special education. Our youngest daughter was my motivation for that last choice of study. Throughout my marriage, I was mostly dependent on my husband's income, although I was very resourceful and I did things to earn a little bit of money for myself, baking and decorating cakes that I would sell, learning how to use a machine to make jumpers and cardigans and even knitted skirts, which I would also receive orders for from family and friends. I had a number of part-time jobs that I never really liked. I also had ideas that I thought I could never achieve. Why? Because my thoughts back then were, I'm only a housewife. One idea that my husband was not supportive of was to rent the home that we were living in. I thought if we didn't sell the other property, we could rent it. And if we were to put a deposit on another property and move out, we did move. But my idea of owning a second property was not something he saw as beneficial. Years later, I became dissatisfied with the marriage. I felt like I was a single mother with very little emotional support. I really wanted to end the relationship. I had talked about this to my sister, uh, to his sister, and about ending things. Her advice at that time was to start going out and have a bit of life outside of the home. So this is what I did. I started enjoying nights out in bars and restaurants and nightclubs with two of my sisters-in-law. I stayed another two years in the marriage. Eventually decided there was more to life. I was reaching the final year of my degree study and he was also studying IT and computing. I found a part-time job in fundraising for a local youth and community project 
and I was also a volunteer for another community project. I'd booked our first overseas holiday as a family and we were booked to go to Tenerife in May. I can't recall what month it was when I finally decided to break the news to him. I had confided in my sister-in-law and she suggested we go out and have a meal together and she would take care of the children. It would not be easy, but I had to find a way to talk about our separating and maybe ending our marriage. We were out having a meal together in a bar in the city centre. After we'd finished eating, I turned the conversation to our relationship. I told him that I felt that we had drifted apart, that we were leading separate lives. I said that if things did not improve after our holiday in Tenerife, then we should think about separating. Thinking back, he didn't really have much of a reaction. No angry outbursts or verbal attacks. Maybe he was in shock. Or maybe he was just accepting. On the first day of the holiday, I knew that the relationship was doomed. We were in the bar of the hotel after a very long, tiring day with the stress of travelling by air for the first time and the excitement and anticipation of a holiday in Tenerife. He was standing at the bar drinking beer and he got chatting with the guy next to him. I was completely ignored. Plus, I was growing tired. The barman was pouring gratis shorts after every beer so the guys were enjoying chatting with each other while I was keeping an eye on the girls. I decided I had to, had had enough and told him I was going to the room. I got the girls settled into their beds and it wasn't long before I was asleep as well. Then I was woken by a loud knocking on the door. Yes, it was him. I had no idea what time it was or how long he'd stayed drinking and chatting in the bar, but there he was, standing outside with a half-full glass of beer in his hand, swinging from side to side. Not the picture I wanted to see from the person I had talked to about if things were not improved after our holiday in Tenerife, then we should think about separating. <laughs> he collapsed onto the bed and I tried to get back to sleep. I have no clue what was going through his mind, but he was talking in his sleep. He even sat on the edge of the bed at one point and was saying out loud, one, zero, one, one. And I guess it was something to do with the computing course he was studying. Binary code, perhaps. So that was when my mind was made up that this relationship was going to end. I didn't have any savings and not enough for a deposit to rent another place. I did not want to ask him to leave. He had no income and was studying for his degree in computing. I asked my stepfather for help. If he could loan me some money so that I could rent a place and move out. And that is what I did. Our daughters came with me and my eldest daughter came with me to look at a house. As we both stood in the lounge looking at each other, we knew that it was perfect. On our first night in that house, we slept on sun lounges as we had not moved the beds from our home. It was all just girls together, including my daughter's friend. We didn't get much sleep as we talked and laughed for most of the night. And when we did try to sleep, the noise of the springs from the sun lounges kept us awake. I'd moved out of our marital home. I owned half of that property and we were joint and severally liable for the mortgage. We also had insurance policies and shares from privatisations. I asked if he would cash in the shares so he could give me half and he agreed. I was still working a part-time job and so needed to claim some welfare payment to help with the monthly costs of rent, household bills, food. The most hurtful thing I think he said to me was that... I only wanted to have our daughters with me so that I could claim the benefits. That hurt me deeply.
At that time, I was still working to finish my degree studies. I also moved from volunteer to paid work in another youth and community project. Eventually, I was working three part-time jobs because of the success that I had in raising a huge amount of funding for those projects. Thanks to my studies with Open University and to my choice to take summer school in IT at Sunderland University. My credit record was good right then, and I decided maybe if I could get a mortgage, I could buy a cheap house, refurbish it and move out of the rented accommodation. What actually happened was that my husband, uh, we were not yet divorced, asked if I wanted to buy out his share of the equity in the property. I was able to obtain a mortgage that covered the outstanding loan and he was given 50% of the equity and I moved back into the home with our girls. Our divorce came later. I found myself working my first ever full-time job. But that's another story. There was no legal conflict. I did not even instruct a solicitor. The property had already been divided and I was paid my own mortgage. I had another relationship and so did my husband. I was not interested in trying to secure any further income or financial support or even looking at if I was entitled to any share of a pension. Death of my partner. In my first book, I start the first chapter with how my second long-term relationship ended. It was very sudden, a complete shock, and was on the day that we were meant to be starting our Christmas holiday together. We had booked to go to Tenerife something we did the year before in December. We were in business together. We had a property management and HMO student rental business. We had started that business from nothing in 2005. It came out of the ashes of another business failure where another person had defrauded hundreds of landlords and students when they had scaled the business far too quickly and were robbing Peter to pay Paul. So this was December 2006 and we were packed and ready to leave with our suitcases locked up and started the short walk to the University Metro station that would take us directly to Newcastle Airport for our flights. We had walked as far as the bridge across the train lines that would take us down to the platform when I heard a stumble from behind me. As I looked around, I saw John stagger forward while dragging his suitcase behind him. He took two steps and then fell forward. His head hit the lamppost of the streetlight as he fell to the ground. I knew that he had not been well in the past few months, but he didn't complain or sought any further medical attention since the last episode that was way back in September. I rushed to help him. He was unconscious. I had to lift him up from where he had fallen, his head trapped between the lamppost and the panels of the bridge. I moved him onto his back with no one else around, and then as he lay there, I called for assistance. I was talking to the person in the call centre who was giving me instructions and telling me to start heart massage, which I started to do. Then I was conscious of people walking by and one young man suddenly bent down and took over with the heart massage compressions. I stood there watching in disbelief. I could hear the sirens of the ambulance in the distance and it seemed like an absolute eternity while I was watching this young student performing the compressions on John's motionless body. He only stopped to allow the paramedics to take over since the ambulance arrived and in the process of the changeover I noticed a smile on John's face and at that point I had a little voice inside of me saying he has gone. I had this inner thought that he had just met someone he knows and is happy to see them. His sister perhaps who had died some time before. 
a few days later and I'm dealing with the funeral arrangements and I'm sitting in the kitchen after having had a meeting with the vicar. He was going to be doing the funeral service and he had just left. The radio was on and as I was sitting there, a song was playing and the words caught my attention. The song was Keeping the Dream Alive by Munshina Freyhart. In my first book, I reproduced part of the lyrics with permission. And the main part of the lyrics that I heard right then was, the game will never be over because we're keeping the dream alive. I decided I was going to be keeping the dream alive. The dream that we had to run the business together. I chose to purchase the song and it was played as people were leaving the funeral service. So this is how my second relationship ended. We were not married. We lived together in a private rental, a three bedroom apartment on the edge of the city centre. I was in full-time employment in December of 2006, earning just over 23000 a year. Our business was just starting to take off after starting in the summer of the year before. I had lost my friend, my lover, my business partner. Fortunately, I was not about to lose my income or my home, and I had high hopes that I could continue to build on the business that we had started together. I continued to run the business up in 2016, despite some difficult economic situations like the financial crash of 2007 and the introduction of legislation around rental deposit schemes, plus increases in student fees in 2012. I had to diversify and move the business in different markets, but the drop-off of students meant opening up to family rentals and professional roomlets. And not just students as HMO-owning property investors were struggling to let their properties uh, I'm not the type of person to give up easily. By 2016, I was in my third long-term relationship after attracting a man into my life in March 2009. How did I attract another man into my life? I write about this in my first book. One late night in January 2009, I was sitting in my office in the flat. I started thinking about what type of man I wanted in my life. It had been just over two years since John had died. I had met a couple of boyfriends, but nothing that became serious. Anyway, I was going to write out what I wanted in my next relationship. I took a piece of A4 paper and stared at the blank sheet, thinking about the night out I'd had with friends, and I remember a song that was playing on in one of the bars, and it was Bonnie Tyler singing, Holding Out for a Hero, with the words, I need a hero and he's got to be strong. But what type of relationship was I looking for? I felt totally lost and confused. I don't think I could identify the qualities I wanted in my next relationship. Perhaps I should have started with what I didn't want. Anyway, I wrote on the paper that I wanted a kind, generous man, a friend, a lover and a soulmate, someone to laugh with, someone who I could go on holiday with two or three times a year, a strong man, a confident man, someone to share my life with. I had found a man who was in business for himself, like me. He seemed like a gentleman, kind, considerate, confident, but not overpowering, assertive, but not controlling. He described himself as an alpha male. He made me laugh, and we laughed together. He was generous. He paid for our first holiday together. It was my belief that I had found the man that was to be a friend, a lover and a soulmate, someone with whom I would share my life. Of course, I was cautious at first, but I realised that I should tread carefully 
Like any new relationship, you need to take your time to get to know the person before you throw all caution to the wind. Lewis's relationship ended on August the 27th, 2020, the year of the lockdowns and COVID restrictions, when businesses across many countries were struggling as governments implemented legislation and rules to try to avoid the spread of the virus. How did he end our 11 years together? It was ruthless and hasty. He moved on very quickly after he had been talking online with a woman he knew from his early 1980s. He met her again in person, apparently on August the 21st, 2020. It was after we had been entertaining our friends and they had just left. He suggested a nightcap before bed. As he prepared the drinks, I tidied away and we were sitting in the armchairs on the porch of our home. I had just taken a sip of my drink. Then he delivered the four sentences that ended our relationship. I've got something to tell you. Whoa, when he said these words, I had a flashback to December 2017 when he delivered another devastating little speech. I write about that in my first book, the chapter titled Confession to My Face. He continued with, I'm in love with another woman. We can remain friends if you want to remain friends. We just can't have sex anymore. And that is why I call this an abrupt termination of the relationship or discard. Here is a quote from verywellmind.com. Narcissistic discard is when a person with narcissistic tendencies ends their relationship with you. It can often feel like you've been used and discarded. August the 29th. Two days later, he writes me a letter of his financial proposal, or gifts his, he termed it. He obviously couldn't talk to me face to face, so as always, he did the next best thing. He types it out in a document so he can hand it to me, only he couldn't get the printer to work. He almost begs me to help him, and I look at him and just say, send it in an email, and I walk out of the office. Sure enough, his letter arrives by email, and I quickly read it and see the words, I know you have a lot of process at the moment. I returned his email with, thanks but no thanks, I have a lot to process right now. I detail the contents of the letter in this chapter, his way or no way at all. August the 30th, he wants to sell both of his properties, his UK and Spanish homes. The Spanish house was our first home together, the home I'd lived in since 2016. As ever, I fall into line and I help him to instruct an agent to put the house on the market. I thought the agent was a friend. Unfortunately, I discovered to my cost later that she wasn't. There was a viewing within a few days. I don't think that the woman who viewed was very interested. September the 4th. He comes into the bedroom where I am keeping myself out of his way. He is angry and threatening. I am shocked. He stands over me while I'm sitting on the bed reading. He then shouts in my face. Not to fuck with him. He tells me. He is in control. I do as he says. And if I don't, I'm out on the streets. The agent, the ex-friend acquaintance, had telephoned him to provide feedback from her client. She told him that I had made a negative comment. Actually, I was asked a question that I answered honestly. And the question was, is there much noise from the motorway? And I answered that I can hear the odd lorry zoom down the motorway at around 6am, but I sleep with the windows open. To which she replies, 
are the windows double glazed? And I said, yes. So there you have it, negative or truthful. September the 15th, more of his threats, verbal abuse, angry rage, intimidation and humiliation as I'm subjected to a verbal onslaught for 26 minutes. We had agreed on a meeting at our home in order that I discuss with him the details of his financial proposal and the proposal I had written to him for his consideration, only he shut me down. I did not get to say anything. I had to listen to what he wanted and what he needed, uh, what, what, what he was prepared to do. I had already made a request for this meeting to be recorded. One. I did not trust him to be civil. In fact, I had experienced his anger outbursts in the past. 2018 was the worst year, but there was other earlier incidents, most of which I had forgotten and brushed under the carpet. Two, I thought that in my emotional state, I would need a recording in order to process everything we discussed. Three, it would be useful as the main points could be transcribed into a document to be taken to a notary for signing into a binding agreement, something he had in fact offered in his first letter. Plus in my email, I made the request for my name to be put into the deeds as he had offered 50% of the value of the property and I was asking to purchase the other half from him. He was offering me four months to raise the money to buy him out of the property after his verbal onslaught and his reaction to the ideas I'd had I was not in a positive state of mind about what had happened. I blamed myself. I was ashamed. I felt guilty, as if I had done something really terrible. October the 5th, the date I received his email. That email told me everything I needed to know about the type of man I have been in a relationship with, a man who never loved me. His words sprang off the screen and were burned into my heart from that moment. In April 2021, I started my first YouTube channel. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. The link will be in the description box below. In my book, I go into the full details of what happened in that meeting. His way or no way at all. And this is why I titled my first book, Post-Separation Abuse, Betrayal and Abandonment, What Type of Man? <laughs> 